2014 will go down as the warmest year around the globe in recorded history. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. The rate is a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say, the will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello and welcome to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, the podcast network for Australia's climate community. On the line with me today is Luke Skinner. Uh, we'll get into who Luke is and his story here in just a second. But we also have another host on the Climactic Network co-hosting with me today. We have Angelica Cross. Hello, Angelica. Hi. How are you today? I, I'm not too bad. I'm actually really excited to be like co-hosting with someone else from the group. And like we, we've been doing a lot this week within Climactic and getting stuff ready to uh, sort of be a network, uh, getting other shows ready to launch. It looks a lot different now than it did two years ago when this thing got started. Uh, how does it look from where you're sitting, Angelica? What what does it kind of feel like to be involved with this? Well, it's been a really big roller coaster, and I think I've, I've been talking about this, but um, I really haven't had much experience with podcasting. I mean, I only bought a mic out like a couple of weeks ago, just before everything panicked. Everyone panicked about. COVID and I was like oh I've got to panic too and buy a microphone so there's there's my panic buying um, and so this is very very new to me and I've been very overwhelmed with like the support that you and the climate climatic collective have provided up have provided me like I just feel like I've been enveloped in support so very much thank you Oh, you're very welcome. It's a it's a really good metaphor. I'm glad that it's enveloped in a good way and not like in like a suffocating kind of like you're being attacked by a slime monster kind of way. So uh, that makes me really happy. And uh, you can tell you're a podcaster when you go out and panic buy a microphone, not, you know, toilet paper or canned goods. It's like I need a way of talking to people through this time, which speaking of this time and why it's maybe such a, um, well, of course, we all know what's going on. It's, it's the, the, the elephant in the room. We are uh, here in Australia on March. We're not in March anymore. We're here in Australia on the 6th of April, which means we're all about three weeks at least into um, social distancing. Uh, physical, you know, spatial distancing, whatever you want to call it, um, week three of lockdown. And this has a profound effect on how people are living, but also how they're working. And so we've got someone on the line today who has some specific experience in kind of the job industry and and unions specifically. So Luke, if you could introduce yourself, say where you're from. Hi. Um, yeah, I'm Luke. I live on Wajak Noongar, Buja, uh, which is the area of WA that covers most of the Perth region. I'm here today as the Secretary of the Climate Justice Union, um, but more broadly, I work in the union movement in my day job in a union which covers workers from all sorts of different industries that have been affected in a lot of different ways. And, you know, there's everything from people who's the demand for their work has gone up four or five fold. Um, 
you know, in warehousing, that kind of thing, right to whole industries that have been completely essentially collapsing on themselves and there's Mm -hmm. tens of thousands of people left without jobs or incomes because let's be clear that so far the government's response has left out the majority, I would say, of casual workers Mm -hmm. uh, because most casual workers don't keep their job for more than a year. Yeah, so that's it's, right. Uh, definitely some really interesting times um, in that regard. I guess it's also pretty interesting to look, though, and see that the, you know, what, what gets called the Overton window, I guess, what is seen as being politically possible has been completely shattered. You know, the mm-hmm. the conservative government that we have in Australia would not have even increased New Start or, or Centrelink payments by $50 a week um, in the last six months or a year ago, whereas now they've just literally doubled it to what is it, five fifty a week or something like that from two hundred and something dollars a week. So yeah. I think that's a good indicator of uh how much things have changed in a very short amount of time and, and a bit of a recognition of really how important it is to look after people in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And it's a really good framing for this chat, Luke, that um we could talk about really anything now because everything has changed. Uh so I'm kinda curious to to get started with this. And Angelica We've got you know, Luke on the line as someone who's been involved with climate activism and the climate movement for years, and uh, especially out in WA, which is an area that I know a lot of our listeners uh, won't know as much about as our own backyards of, I know most of you listening are in Victoria or in New South Wales. So I'm kind of curious, Angelica, what have you got in mind to talk to Luke about? Well, I think the thing that I was going to have a little conversation about because it's been, I've been thinking about it just over the last little while, been developing some stuff around it, is really what food justice looks like. Um, and that's that's been a, a bit kind of, and it, and it really does fit in with, like, climate justice because um, I've been looking a lot at, like, the ways that climate change has changed the way that we understand food management um, and logistics. And, and it's pretty much a, you know, Many of those vulnerable communities are are very much impacted by climate change. Are also very much impacted with food because, from what from what I've read, it's been a lot of issues with accessibility um, and affordability. So yeah. I kind of wanted to uh, kind of your thoughts on that, but you know also just generally about like what what the union, the climate justice union, has been about. When the union's inspiration through the workers' blood shall run, there can be no power greater anywhere beneath the sun. Yet what force on earth is weaker than the feeble strength of one? But the union makes us strong. Solidarity forever. I think you probably have to explain the difference between what, as a union, you work as a union, your, your day job, um, and what that looks like different to what you do with the climate justice union. Climate so justice I think that'd be a really important. What is real justice, right? And you know, yeah. I think answering that in the context of the situation that we're in now is really important. And it's also really important because so much of the inequity and injustice um, that creates vulnerability to coronavirus in our community is also the same inequities and injustices or at least have the same solutions quite often as what are required for achieving climate justice now what is justice i mean there's a a million different answers out there to that question um but from 
kind of our perspective as the Climate Justice Union, we look at the J in CJU as meaning that nobody gets left behind, uh, that nobody's left to just die of, you know, whether it's from poverty, inaccessibility of food, heat stroke, just from the loss of power or something like that when coal-fired power plants go down due to the heat or, you know, there's a there's a million different ways that you can look at um, how people suffer as a result of climate change or as a result of action uh, on climate change. And, you know, if you look at communities that are already highly vulnerable, are generally communities that have high levels of poverty, that have homelessness, that have low-quality housing, that don't necessarily have good transportation systems and public transportation systems and all of that kind of thing where there's a high level of you know concentration in ownership of assets whether that's in ownership of land or all of the shops etc owned by the same people or uh because what also that often means is that a lot of other people don't have access and you know you, you can see that playing out even in the early days of you know you mentioned panic buying earlier right people who have a lot of money were able to go out and panic buy and get their supplies, get a lot of supplies, and I think there was also a whole lot of predatory buying in there, people who had resources buying it to hoard it to hopefully sell to desperate people later on. So what we need to do to, you know, reduce that level of vulnerability is all about social equity. It's about making sure that all people, and I mean literally all people, have a stable income that meets their requirements for living, you know, so that's a a basic wage or a, or a guaranteed income of some variety, whether it's called a universal basic income or something else. Uh, all people in a time like this need an income. And if all people need an income in a time like this, then we also always need an income because the normal that we were living in before coronavirus was a crisis. It was just happening a lot slower, right? So for us, justice is about leaving no one behind, making sure that everyone has their needs in life met that no one's culture is getting absolutely demolished and destroyed, you know, making sure that the things which are currently indicators of uh, vulnerability in our society, you know, and I'm talking about things like race, gender, age, disability status, each of those things has an element of discrimination, which is why those people are vulnerable uh, and so we need to have positive discrimination, essentially, that happens to reduce the level of vulnerability in those kind of communities. And also, like, obviously, there's a big one around mental health um, that is a concern for the climate movement in general. There are a lot of people who deal with existential mm -hmm. grief and anxiety. And I think mm -hmm. the whole of the world is currently coming to grips with what a lot of climate activists have dealt with in their, you know, in their activism and in their own mental health, I think coronavirus is having a similar impact on a lot of those kind of uh, a lot of people who weren't feeling that kind of existential dread before but i mean let's be clear the coronavirus is huge and probably the biggest thing that most people have experienced so far in their life but the scale mm -hmm. of the crisis is minute compared to what we are facing with climate change yeah really really good summation there luke of kind of what the situation is and a lot of the the intersections it's it has across yeah you mentioned on housing policy and the way that the the already poor and vulnerable are disproportionately feeling the effects of the covid pandemic now as well um i wonder just to to focus down on angelica's questions around food and if uh cju response or or yourself in your day job what kind of 
implications it's having on yeah food security food availability and not just you know what the situation is currently which we know is is bad and is unjust but what kind of parallels you see this having as the uh, the climate crisis plays out more in future so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna talk with my day job hat on in this interview. Fair uh, enough. I'm, I'm I'm not a representative <laughs> of that organization when I'm talking outside of that organization. Yep. Thank um, you for that disclaimer. That's great. But I will say, you know, from a climate justice perspective, we can we can have a talk in a second about what the future is like. But let's also look at what the present is like, uh, and I mean the very very recent present that shows us the impacts of climate change. And I'm talking about the fires in Victoria and New South Wales, because I was involved in some outreach to about 16,000 people who were in communities affected by the climate crisis, the fires, and then also by the floods in in New South Wales. And you know what some of the biggest fears in those communities are at the moment? It's, It's about the return of tourists to an area that was beautiful and relied on tourism because of its natural surrounds that is now burnt to a crisp. Uh, of course, some of that will come back over time. But uh, the, the next biggest one that we found was uh, dairy farms and farming communities, but particularly dairy farms, uh, worrying about their capacity to survive the coming years if they are exposed to droughts like they have been recently and fires like they have been recently in areas that didn't experience either of those before because it is putting the viability of their entire industries and all of the downstream people that rely on those industries at risk. And certainly there were a lot of dairy farmers who, after the fires swept through their communities, they also had a whole lot of infrastructure issues, fences burnt down, processing facilities damage, transport, routes, damage, and all, yeah, all of the rest of roads. that. Yeah. yeah, and it's only going to continue to go down that route. And, and, of course, then if you really want to get up to the kind of more macro level, Australia is probably a place where food insecurity is much lower than the rest of the world. Uh, might be a bit different if you live up in the Pilbara or in, um, you know, the Kimberley where the supply chains to get food to those locations are really long and you have a situation talking about broken transport systems, you have a situation where you might have something grown along the Ord River, uh, which is up near Broome and in, in the Kimberley here in WA, and then it dri- it's driven off loan or transported two and a half, three thousand kilometres down to the facilities in Perth where it's processed and then it's sent back up by a refrigerated truck to the Woolworths and Coles-type places in the Kimberley, right? So you're talking something doing a 6,000-kilometre round trip, a fruit, a piece of fruit or vegetable. No wonder the supply chain there is so easily disrupted, especially with floods and cyclones that happen there every year and yeah. with big fires that happen in the, you know, the southwest of the state, which is where the processing centres are. Yeah. So, you know, you can look at that and you can see that's why they're vulnerable. But then you can also look at, you know, the food baskets of the world that we've been growing in for thousands of years are places that were very balanced climates that were, you know, they, they weren't too wet. Some of them might have been, but they, they also weren't too dry. And now the weather patterns that established those stable climates are shifting uh, as a result of climate change and they're becoming too wet or they're becoming too dry or the piece of land on which it was really good to farm is now depleted of all of its minerals because we've had a, a str- essentially a 
form of industrial agriculture that has stripped the richness from the soil, which is what a lot of our industrial agriculture for the last 50 or 60 years has been heavily reliant on, you know, insecticides and chemical processing and getting phosphorus and nitrogen from elsewhere and bringing it over and putting it in the soil and not regenerating the soil, but degrading the soil over and over again. I'm just going to ask you a question about that sort of stuff is, do you think that like the emergence of something called like regenerative agriculture has been a positive in that instance? And in how does that sort of relate to your work with the Climate Justice Union? Are you sort of developing strategies to deal with like industrial agriculture and all of that? You know, how you're telling us about like climate change impacting on the way that we grow food and the way that we logistically transport food which are really big issues have you sort of huge issues yeah massive like amazingly massive so and i and i know that like obviously you probably haven't got but is there strategies in place that you've been developing there's a couple of pieces to that question firstly i'll say the simple answer is that regenerative agriculture does the opposite of what our our let's not call it traditional farming because actually regenerative agriculture is the most traditional form of of agriculture and it's what we did for thousands of years before we moved to the current model in the last 100, maybe 120 now. You could say the the current dominant practice or current majority The current industrial agriculture process where where you have essentially massive fields of a monocrop of one type of wheat or one type of animal, etc. Regenerative agriculture absolutely is a solution to regenerating the soils and pulling carbon out of the atmosphere and putting it back into the soils. Now, the second part of the question is kind of about Climate Justice Union and what our role is. So we are not necessarily a policy development unit. Um, Our aim anyway, we're a small organisation that's growing. We launched on September 26 last year. We've now got about 110 members, which is not a bad start from all different types of parts of society. What our main aim with our work is to do is to enable communities like the agricultural community and leaders within those communities, like people who've already moved to regenerative agriculture here in WA and in South Australia and a few other places around the world, to support those people to be able to find out what the solutions for their industry and also for their community that they live in locally uh, are when it comes to having a just transition for their communities away from environmentally destructive and fossil fuel dependent and phosphorus and nitrogen import dependent infrastructure to one that enables them to regenerate their own soils and to sustain themselves through drought and improve the ecosystem and environment around them. Uh, and that that's essentially the, the core of our model of organising across everything that we do is that we're not so much necessarily going to go out, get a policy and try and convince a community that that's what needs to happen. We are going to communities or we are already from communities. Members of the union might already be from the communities and we've got some regenerative agriculture folks within the union already. So we're looking at, you know, industries or physical geographical communities and working with key people in those areas, some self-identified, some who we identify as leaders that we need to be influencing because they're already influential you know, there's some people that you just need to come to the party. Um, and we're working with those people to look at what does a transition look like in your community and what are the benefits and what is the cost-benefit analysis versus doing things how they are, how does it bring community together, and that's kind of the base um, level of our approach. 
sounds really um really good and I, I i really i really like the community based approach on that i mean it i guess it reduces your workload as well as um giving agency and to the people who are involved with your union I'm not sure I would agree with the, the statement that it reduces your workload. It just changes the workload, right? <laughs> uh, I, I would actually argue that making a policy and then bringing it to people and trying to convince them, but then not necessarily taking it up and then you giving up is what really reduces the workload, which is what a lot of, um, you know, uh, unfortunately, a lot of technologically focused and other solutions focused environmental campaigning has done over the years finding the solution capital t capital s and then saying everyone has to use this because we found the solution yeah totally and telling people that they're doing the wrong thing that's that's not how it works yeah and you don't want to be telling people that they are the problem or they're doing the wrong thing what you know that's how you get people offside that's how you piss off coal miners who you need on side because actually coal miners don't want to be left without a job either right and most people in the coal industry know now and i can say this with a level of authority for people in wa anyway uh, because i have spoken to a lot of coal miners and to the coal miners union here they know there is a firm limit on how long their jobs are going to continue for um in a place called collie here in western australia it's our main coal mining town and it has you know the the coal and the coal-fired power plants in collie have kept the electricity and the lights on for the southwest of WA for the last hundred odd years, their community has dealt with, you know, black lung and dust exposure and illness, and but they've also had, you know, good solid wages for jobs that are secure for generations for about sixteen hundred people at the moment, maybe seventeen hundred and fifty people working directly in the coal employed industries down there at the moment, and those people, you know, deserve good paying jobs. They've lived in a rather isolated town they've done hard work in a hard job in a not a great environment for a long time Uh, and so what i'm about is how do we work with those people to make sure that those people have a job they can go to before the coal industry shuts down Uh, and to make sure that their community not only just has you know we don't want those people having to go to fly out fly in fly out jobs that are thousands of kilometers away or driving to the city for work We want to make sure that that community can be sustained as well. It's done a really good job, that community has, of providing a service to the whole of the WA community. Uh, And so it's now our turn to make sure that we help them to find solutions that work for their community. And so when an opportunity came up last year um, to work with Beyond Zero Emissions, who had received some funding to do a bit of a report on the Southwest energy sector in WA, we jumped at the opportunity to work with them and link them up with the various different um, unions covering all the workers from the coal community in Collie and to help support them to come up with a, a proposal for replacing the jobs in Collie that are currently penned to the coal mining and burning industry with jobs that would be secure and reliable and also you know, full-time permanent positions skilled positions that would 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 require at least some level of high pay now the coal industry is a little bit unique in its high pay um, as a lot of other essential services sectors that have been well unionized are in that they've been able to use their bargaining power as an organized workforce that the state depends on for a very long time to get you know good pay rates but they lost 
I'm not sure how much, but it was in the range of 30% of their incomes on a, for a lot of those coal workers just a few years ago because the coal mine, mining companies are no longer able to operate at a high profit like they used to be able to. And in fact, some of the coal mining in Western Australia is operating at a loss and being held up by the government, essentially. So, you know, these are people who are already, they already know that things are going bad and, and the property prices for those people who own their houses in Collie, every time there's mm. a mention of coal closures, bang, they go down. So these people end up in more debt than their assets are worth. And it really, really is a, um, it really is a quandary for a lot of those people who are just ordinary people doing an ordinary job as far as they're concerned, you know. Um, and if you can get them on side, then you can have change in a community like Collie. Yeah. And, and, and Collie is a case that we could easily do an entire episode about. And I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because I wanted to as well. Because that the BZE report, I'll be honest, I, I have not yet taken the time to read it, but I was super interested in it. Uh, it's just, it's no offense to BZE. I love what they do. It's just, I don't read that type of uh, white paper in the best of times. <laughs> um, I, I'm curious, though, with them as an example of a very kind of natural partner for the CJU to work with. So I think Dank, like Beyond Zero Emissions, it's looking at ways to transition to a, a clean energy economy and a clean general economy in Australia. Um, they're a very natural ally to work with CJU. What's an example of a unsup- like a a more unconventional ally for you guys to work with or a surprising group that uh, you found have been a lot more receptive than you would have thought? I mean, I, I don't think that we've, for, for at least for me, I don't think that um, this is a surprising one really because as I just said, I think coal miners already know that they are, you know, on the front line in, in the transition. And so the coal miners union, although in some parts of the country, you know, is... Um, at least painted as by the environment movement, uh, hostile and not willing to work with them. That's certainly not been our case here. Um, so some people think that that's a kind of strange ally for us. Uh, but actually, I don't really think that we've got many allies that we didn't really kind of predict. I mean, there's there's the obvious kind of billionaires as allies like Mike Cannon-Brooks. Like I, I've never worked with him directly. Um, nor has CJU, but I think that would be the kind of person that we would consider to be an unlikely ally. You know, unions mm. and billionaires don't usually get along. <laughs> um, and, I mean, I and billionaires don't usually get along. I don't think that they should exist, <laughs> period. Um, some of our allies, though, that we have got that have been, you know, some of the most proactive and, and kind of hardworking in the space who I would like to give a shout-out to and maybe who aren't, uh, what other organisations might consider to be their natural allies are people like the um, so Tenancy WA here in Western Australia. They're a, um, a renters uh, renters rights group basically, um, and of mm-hmm. course, as I was saying earlier, that the poor quality of housing stock is one of the real issues when you have a society where well, a energy consumption is a big issue, but be where you have temperatures that can reach into their 45, 50 degrees Celsius where they're going to reach and they already get 45, 46, 47 here, you know, uh, in summer. Yeah. And then you get a little bit further out into the kind of more desert areas of the state and you get some places that nearly, you know, they, they get close to the 50 degrees and once you hit 48 degrees, that's the point at which the human brain overheats and people die literally just from heat exposure. If your housing stock quality is low, you don't have insulation or air conditioning, 
Yeah. Uh, when those things happen more and more often and for more extended periods of um, time, we're going to see a lot of people die. Yeah. And the so conversation the becomes a lot easier when it's around mortality. Uh, it, it can get really fuzzy sometimes around justice and, and hard to define, and yet it is such a, a bright line when you start talking about the the cost-benefit analysis of like, oh, okay, well, these are areas that would be tough to retrofit, you know, the people living there already, they're, it's tough to say, but like, they're of marginal value to the rest of our society, that's why I don't really care, but as soon as you start seeing people dying and potential, you know, like, yeah, death by uh, the shelters not being fit for the environment that, that they're built in, um, that's indisputable, and that's when you can, I guess, really drive home the message of, of what is climate justice well it's hard to describe exactly what it is but here's exactly what it's not yeah exactly uh, people dying. it's really easy to point out what it's not and i think a situation like what we're in now really puts the lie to oh it's too hard you know i don't know if i'm allowed to swear on this podcast but i'm going to anyone who says that it's Please. too hard can get <laughs> fucked because mm-hmm. you know what we are facing is huge and what we are dealing with now with coronavirus is huge as well but if we are able to you know make all of the rapid changes that we've made in the last couple of weeks and the ones that we will continue to make going forwards around closing all international flights shutting off the border for western australia for the first time in history uh you know and having isolation where only two people are allowed to be out at a time together we can retrofit a few houses, you know. We can put a few batteries on some remote communities. We can set up infrastructure that pulls water from the air in those communities. We could install, if we can spend two hundred or $120 billion for a six-month program of dealing with a major emergency, why can't we spend $120 billion on dealing with a long-term crisis that's going to be put the pandemic into proportion as something quite small when it eventually does all happen right the answer is not that we can't the answer is that we can and it's just that politicians and people with power have chosen not to because they do not value people and people's living conditions the same way that they value mining money and fossil fuel infrastructures profit margins right Uh, and i think this Mm -hmm. this coronavirus has put the lie to that whole thing Angelica, you've got a question around sort of the environmental movement. Your natural allies and stuff. You you pointed out that there was some antagonism between coal miners and the environmental movement, which you know it can be understood because it, it's it is seems to be mutually exclusive. But um, and I've seen a lot of like messaging around the environmental movement about climate union, like climate justice, and I just sort of want to sort of to figure out what your relationship with the environmental activists, because you're not, I guess, in a, you're an activist in a different way than like the environmental movement is. I mean, I've previously worked at a conservation council. I've been involved in the fracking campaign and the logging campaigns and shark protection campaigns and, you know, a lot of that as well. So my personal feeling is that um, single-issue campaigning or siloed campaigning actually just doesn't work um, to achieve the scale of change uh, that we need to have in order to protect our environment. Um, And I think that people care uh, more about the impacts 
of environmental destruction on people than they do about the environment itself in general. Um, uh, and so, I mean, I I have some problems and, and, you know, Climate Justice Union exists partially because we feel that the environment movement has failed to achieve what it what its aims have been around climate change for quite a long time and that we feel that that failure has been around a lack of intersectionality um, in the way that the issues are dealt with. I mean, it's 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 one thing to campaign around, you know, the death of the Great Barrier Reef or loss of wildlife and those kinds of things. Um, but if you really want to bring power to the movement to stop the fossil fuel industry and to change our entire society into a new way of operating, which is what we are proposing with the climate movement, right? We are, I don't think anyone disagrees that we're, we're proposing to entirely change the way our society operates. Achieving that requires power at a scale that the environment movement has never even been close to, um, and that means that you need to be able to find power elsewhere. And there is only one in my opinion, one history of activism in the world, of collective organising in the world, that has had the, that kind of power to entirely reshape societies um, in the last 200 years at least anyway. And that's been the union movement um, or organised labour and organised communities, organised people who are organising around human issues and their own quality of life you know, we're friends with the environment movement. We are parts of all of the environment movement conversations about climate, and I'm really happy to see that the climate movement, particularly since the election loss for Labor last year at a federal level, has started looking at the need to address the justice element of climate justice in order to bring enough people on the journey that we need to bring. Uh, if, if we are set up by big businesses to have fights with workers about coal jobs, we are in a conflict with people who are considered true blue Aussies and who have an image and who the country has relied on for a very long time, you know, and you could say the same thing in, in most countries potentially. Uh, whereas if we have them on our side saying we need a just transition, then the only people we are fighting against are our common enemies, which are multinational fossil fuel companies, you know, uh, even local fossil fuel companies. But workers who work in the fossil fuel industry, for example, they already, their, their common enemy with, that they have with us is their boss, is the company that they work for. Um, so we're about bringing people along, and it's not just fossil fuel workers, right? The, a huge part of the, um, the climate movement in Australia has been healthcare workers, and the healthcare workers are on the front line again with coronavirus, right? The, because they can see p that, that climate change is as much of a public health issue as coronavirus is, mm -hmm. over time it's going to lead to significant reductions in the quality of life for a whole lot of people and people who are living on the margins, if we don't improve our society and reduce their vulnerability, are going to die. They're going to die in their very large yeah. numbers and the ones who are not quite on the margins are going to be pushed to the margins and they're going to have the same risk of early death, disease, homelessness and all of those things that the people on the margins currently have. Um, and so bringing yeah. people like healthcare workers along for the ride and making sure that we change the narrative that climate change is an environmental issue that is about polar bears and 
the barrier reef to climate change is an issue about me and you and you know i don't have kids but the the children of other people my brother's children have an environment and a climate that they can grow up in that enables them to live a life that has been as good as ours has been for the generations to come and to, to keep going that way but also that they can have you know good jobs or at least a, very, a secure income and not have the risk of you know being forced out of their homes because uh, and, and having to live in the streets during a time where the climate is maybe you know we know the climate is going to be worse than it is now so in order to yeah. fix that gap and make it so that people in society can have the same quality of life that we have now we need to put in a whole lot of protections and supports for those future people and for people who are currently marginal or, or live, living in a vulnerable situation so that their quality of life stays the same or gets better and so that the whole of society's quality of life can stay the same or get better even as climate change happens which it is happening no yep. matter how hard we work now already on that trajectory um Luke, you said a lot of um, great stuff there. Uh, this could definitely spin off into five or six standalone episodes, and I'm sure we're going to have you back on a lot in future to talk about the work of the Climate Justice Union. I've just got a couple quick questions about to bring it back to specifically the times we're in right now, especially in the Australian context of, yes, the big shift we've seen in the not just the rhetoric but the actions of the uh, the Liberal National Federal Government. How does the actions of the, the Australian government over the last couple of weeks, the, the response to COVID, kind of strike you as a sign of what could be possible or what, what a appropriate climate response from the federal government could be? Um, we've got some members of the collective who very rightly, I think, give us all in the climate movement a lot of... Uh, uh, they're disappointed in how the climate movement points to government as the people most responsible and most able to fix the climate crisis, that, you know, the government can't wave a wand and change society. That really does have to be a, a whole of society lift. Yeah, except the government just what? waved a wand and changed society, didn't they? Look at us all sitting in behind our fucking doors. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Admittedly, let's, some of let's that talk is about that a little bit. Right? So I think, I think that people who have criticism about that are, are right to some extent. I'm one of those people who has that mm. criticism sometimes, but I think the criticism comes more from a perspective of people believing that government is the only body that can do that work um, and that we have to wait for elections and changes in government to have change happen. You know, one thing that mm -hmm. literally the most common objection I would say I have to campaigning practices in Australia from the environment movement are that they are way too focused on electoral politics and particularly on trying to put energy and effort into marginal electorate campaigning. And I think this has been very, 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 very clearly demonstrated by the Liberal Party in the last few weeks, are that when there is enough... Yeah, they're unrecognisable, well, you know, aren't they, from the election? social demand for something to happen in society, yep. it'll happen in society. That's the thing. It doesn't matter if you have a yeah. Liberal Party government. It doesn't matter if you have a Labor Party government. If people get organised, enough people get organised, if we can organise a general strike and a demand for, you know, action on climate change that is very specific and, and thought out and that has some specific, yeah. you know, maybe five or six specific things that we demand to happen at once, that general strike will be successful. 
We have a situation in which a government one week said, we will not ever implement a wages guarantee. And then the following week, under pressure from the union movement, implemented a wages guarantee. Uh, Mm. So I think that, you know, government is important. We live in a democratic society. We are not a pure democracy, you know. Uh, We are a constitutional democracy. Um, Our constitution and our democracy is not perfect, but I think it's really important in times like these that we remember that we have fought for and won the right to be a democratic country uh, and that the decisions that are made by government are supposed to be reflective of the desires of the people and that at one point in time we lived under a monarchy and the people had no capacity to decide what was the right thing to do. Uh, and that the only reason we have a democracy is because people got mm-hmm. organised and they demanded their own rights and they demanded to have a say in how their countries are run. If we get organised, if we stop being, you know, it's one thing to be physically isolated, but if we stop living in silos from each other and we start looking at other people and the vulnerability in our society and we start taking responsibility for that collectively and we say together as a civilian population in Australia... We do not ever want to see homelessness again. We're seeing governments putting the homeless up in hotels right now because otherwise those homeless people are at risk of coronavirus. And it's actually probably cheaper to house all the homeless than it is literally just to provide for their health needs even outside of the coronavirus times. So if we as a society decide that we are going to work together to make sure these things happen permanently and we demand them and we are willing to strike over them, and we are willing to withdraw our labour, and we are willing to call politicians, pressure people, sit in streets, all of the various things that you might do, mobilise, you know, maybe we have to do different things while we're in isolation, and maybe there's going to be millions of people logging onto government websites and it gets called a DDoS, uh, you know. It, there's Maybe there's other ways that we can demonstrate. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe there's, maybe there's ways instance, that we can demonstrate yeah. our power while still being at home. I think that we can achieve whatever needs to be achieved, regardless of who is in power, if we have enough power as collectively organised people. And that's what the Climate Justice Union is all about. We are looking at working across all of the communities, physically speaking, in Western Australia, and working across all of the industries that we can identify you know, obviously there's micro-industries and all the rest of that, but working with people from any industry that needs a transition because actually it, mm-hmm. it, to change everything requires everyone um, and we need all of those people to take ownership yeah. for their own little piece of the pie but to also recognise that they are taking ownership for their piece of the pie so that other people can take ownership for their piece of the pie and that other people can take ownership of another piece of the pie and that collectively we can all demand that each other's pieces get implemented uh, and we can collectively support each other to implement those pieces. And some of that may have to happen against the wishes of government. Some of it we may have to do ourselves. You know, um, we never had a 40-hour week. We never had sick pay before. This might be a fact that most people don't know, but it was Mm -hmm. the Spanish flu in 1918 that led to the mobilisation of unions in Australia to achieve sick pay for the first time anywhere in the world, and that is now a universal right across all of Australia's, you know, permanent employees, and we should make that a right for all casual employees too after this pandemic because we know that actually 
we can reduce influenza rates, we can reduce the common cold and all the rest of that by sick people staying home and that economically our whole society will be better off for that and physically our whole society will be better off for that and less old people and asthmatics and immunosuppressed people will die as a result. I think this um, crisis has highlighted all of that for most people and that by the time we get out the other side, which could be 12, 18, 24 months, people are going to be different than what they were going into the crisis and who knows what we can achieve together. Wonderful. As, as a union delegate at my job, like I'm fully, fully behind all of the issues and fully excited about the fact that you brought up unions and, um, and their influence to and the, the power of the collective to, to influence society. So not a question. Luke, would it be appropriate to say that, you know, there's no better time for the union for everyone climate justice union than the time where everything has just changed in the time yeah, where we I mean, need to I, change I everything. Agree. I agree. I think there's a, always, it's always the time to be union, but it's especially the time to be union during a pandemic and a crisis. And while, you know, I definitely want to plug for people to log on to climatejusticeunion.org and go there and join the union because, you know, you're, your financial con contribution as a union member, whether or not you're from WA, will help us to do some really important work here in Western Australia. Um, but if you're in WA, we can organise with you. Mm -hmm. We have set our scope only to WA at the moment because it's enough of a challenge. Um, we'll see where that ends up. Um, but I just really want to encourage people, if you are still working right now, you're an essential worker, you have a lot of collective power. If you and your workmates collectivise and organise right now and join your union... Your power is stronger in the workplace than it has ever been in your lifetime, and we can achieve social change. Absolutely. Fantastic, Luke. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for coming on. This will not be the last time you come on Climactic, that's for sure. Look forward to it. <laughs> and uh, thank you so much for joining me today as my co-host, Angelica. That was great. Thank you for inviting me. I had a lot of fun. I mean, it's the first time, so we're, we're all learning here. It's a steep learning curve, another one. <laughs> Well, uh, you know, for all the climactic listeners out there, it's, I'm sure it's great to hear new voices and hear new people getting involved, and also really heartening that if if you've got any interest in, yeah, doing interviews or you know getting into media, this also is a really good time because usually most people right now are available and they're looking to talk, <laughs> which is really good for us. All right, thanks again. We'll sign off. Go well, everyone. Stay safe. Cheers. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, a podcast network dedicated to lifting the voices of the climate community. You can find out more about the people behind Climactic and all the shows we produce at climactic.fm. We are a social enterprise podcast network, and we greatly appreciate your support. You can find a link to our Pausable where you can support us directly in the show notes of this episode or from our website. Thank you for listening, and from the whole Climactic Collective, keep up the great work and take care of each other in these climactic times. The Climactic Collective.